it's very clear that Canada runs very lean in terms of the number of hospital beds per capita that we have. So that means that Canada has tends to have fewer hospital beds per capita than many OECD countries, and that includes most of Europe. I suppose the question is, do we have the right number and should we have more? This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. All right, with me from beautiful British Columbia, Dr. Jason Sutherland. Thanks for making this time. I'm happy to be here today. How does someone get into such a niche of healthcare spending? Well, that's a great question, David. I've always been interested in who is paying for all of the health services that people are using and how are people deciding where that money should go? So it's always been one of the leading things that I think about is who's paying and how does money flow through the healthcare system and how does it affect different organizations like hospitals or individual healthcare providers like physicians' behaviors. And upon studying this topic, what would you say has stood out to you the most as to why the services of someone like you is beneficial? Well, I think um, I would describe myself as a health systems researcher, Um, and I'm very interested to understand how health systems provincially in Canada self-organize to manufacture health services to provide health care to their residents. So I've always been really interested in understanding how this system, based on government's policies and directions, decides which things to emphasize, which other things to de-emphasize, where to spend its money, how to create incentives for individual organizations or individuals to behave or, or to act in certain ways that are beneficial for generating or maintaining health for residents of Canada. Um, I've been working in the field for about 20 years now, and I'm always learning. And that's one of the things that I like the most about my job is understanding or learning about how things occur the way that they do in the healthcare system. For instance, why are the nurses, you know, uh, fighting over contracts with the governments? Why are the physicians unhappy with the governments? Why are hospitals trying to figure out which services to provide? So those big systems level questions have always been the ones that have interested me. Can you explain this to the average Joe? When there's so much public funding set aside for hospitals, why do they have to every so often raise money from people for certain things at the hospitals? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Hospitals generally have been receiving about 5% budget increases for about the last five years. And this is pre-pandemic. Uh, the rate of inflation in healthcare spending is usually greater than the rate of inflation overall. Governments generally give hospitals about a 5% increase in their budget to provide the services for a year. But if the hospital is trying to you know, extend in areas that it doesn't have the money for with its core operating budget, then often it turns to the community and or nonprofit organizations to help it raise money to, for instance, buy imaging machines or vans to give people rides to uh, either their outpatient or inpatient services or emergency departments. So it's a very common phenomenon that hospitals turn to their communities. 
And hospitals are the biggest source of expenditures in the healthcare system. They are the largest by a significant margin, actually. And then they are followed by close and neck and neck are physician services and drug spending. So that is the drugs that governments pay for people that are not insured with commercial or employer-based healthcare. And then the physician services of all the primary care and specialty physicians that work in the provinces. But by and far, the hospitals are the biggest source of, of expenditures for governments. So with what's transpired over these past couple of years in our country and around the world, uh, do you see uh, some of the deficiencies of not having funding for uh, things like vans, as you alluded to, as, as maybe being uh, closed off and the government just forking over that money themselves? Or do you think we're going to continue in this cycle of what we've been used to for decades? I think it's hard to forecast what's going to happen as we exit the pandemic state in healthcare. Um, the most recent numbers published by the Canadian Institute for Health Information have demonstrated that healthcare system, public healthcare systems spending has increased substantially above the benchmark of 5%, which is the regular per annum increase in healthcare inflation. So it is possible that after the pandemic subsides and we return to some sort of state of normalcy, that governments may try to either get down to the regular 5% increases or may even take it down a little bit further, 2 or 3%, to try to recoup some of this extra spending that they incurred during the pandemic's um, you know, several years, two and a half years we're almost at right now. So while it's specifically hard to isolate and forecast how governments are going to behave in terms of health system spending, I don't see that it's sustainable for a long time that they'll keep on spending at the rate that they did during the pandemic. And we can expect some sort of retrenchment in the next year or two. Fascinating. You've uh, done quite a bit of study on different models that certain provinces have, have tried out. What do you see as being a barrier in, in Canada being so enamored with, with, with Medicare in and of itself that Tommy Douglas introduced of, uh, of being this model where everyone would receive medical care uh, for free while paying for it in their tax dollars. In your work, has, has that been something that has been hard to get, to get past as you try to look at other costs and, and figures that need to be balanced? Yeah, no, I'm happy to try and take a stab at that question, because I think as we reflect on the state of Medicare and, and now with the federal announcements around helping provinces try to move a national pharmacare program and dental care programs, it's really opened up the question of what are we paying for and what should we pay for? So the current, the model that was envisioned by Tommy Douglas had the, the hospital-based care and physician care for all patients that needed it was to be free at the point of contact and that the cost would be insured or remunerated by the government to the hospitals and physicians. Now that currently happens across Canada, anywhere you access hospital-based care or physician care it's free to the, to the patient or to the person receiving health care. Beyond the physician and the hospital, though, it is really a bit of a mixed bag, and that's where a lot of interprovincial differences occur. 
So in some provinces, the public option for drug payments or, or the drug insurance plan are much more generous in terms of access than they are in others. So for instance, it may be that in the province of Quebec right now, it's obligatory for everyone to have drug insurance. And that ensures a minimum level of access to all residents of Quebec. Whereas in other provinces, you know, accessing drugs is predominantly through extra insurance provided by their employer for working age adults. And then the public plan covers children and people over the age of 65. And that's really where you start to see some differences between provinces. And that extends over into other areas such as home care and long-term care, where some provinces have more generous thresholds and criteria for who's able to access long-term care free of charge to them or or how much it's subsidized um, by the government and also who provides it. In some provinces, the models look very different. So for example, in a lot of provinces, you know, it's a mix of private for profit, long-term care operators, not for profit, and also publicly owned and government funded and operated. So there's a lot of differences once you get outside the, the hospital and the physician's offices in terms of what kind of access to what kind of health and healthcare products and services you're obligated to pay for. What do you see in your research of being most effective of having a model where there is a public and private component? Are there sometimes the, the negative side effect of, of things being kind of siloed, whereas if everything was sort of streamlined together? Canada's model of healthcare delivery has largely remained unchanged for the last 30 to 40 years. And I think it's hard for Canada to pick what is a, the best path because we live next door to the United States where provided you have money, you can access any type of healthcare product or service whenever you want, essentially. But if Canada was to look towards the European models of healthcare, like if we were talking uh, Sweden and Denmark and Norway, their healthcare plans are much more expansive in that they go much more beyond what is considered the Canadian healthcare hospitals and doctors. They would include uh, lots of home care and dementia care, uh, assisted living care, all publicly provided in terms of trying to make sure that people's health and well-being are maintained or improved over the course of their lifetime. Mm. So I'm not sure that we should cast, cast our eye too far south in terms of what we want, <laughs> mostly because it is a very expensive model of care. But if we look to see what's happening in Europe in terms of what's covered and why those are covered, we might think that we have a very skimpy basket of healthcare services and products for our residents. And then it becomes a question of, well, do we want to pay for more? And then do we want to contemplate raising taxes? The federal government has announced major initiatives in terms of a national pharma care program and also a national dental care program. So these are expansions of the social safety net available to Canadians, are not yet, but ostensibly will be in the next couple of years. And we have to ask ourselves, well, do we need other things in that social safety net? And I would posit that we do because we invest a lot in physical health care, but we underinvest in things like mental health care. 
so counseling and psychotherapies and and those kind of um, services by and large are not publicly funded in the Canadian provinces. And they there's a very strong case to be made for providing for mental health care as well as physical health care. And with that being said, Jason, one of the things that was all over the news and as we are kind of at the end of this pandemic now, uh, a little bit out of your uh, expertise, but just we had about 90, 95% of our ICU units already, you know, being used prior to COVID. And so then when we have the pandemic take off and there's all these people that need to get into ICU, uh, it looks like maybe we're a bit more strapped than we really are. But had there been some more prudent planning and we had more beds in the hospital, whether it was through public or private funding, it may not have been as detrimental. I guess at the end of the day, like when it comes to you, it doesn't matter where the money is coming from, but has there been some good benchmarks, do you think, from these past couple of years to figure out like what money needs to be spent on? Well, I don't think that I've seen a lot of great work about what should we do in the future coming out of the pandemic. I mean, there is a lot of work and people are writing about good things to offer residents to improve their health and well-being. But there's no sort of league table of rankings to sort of say, here's what we should do and here's what we should not do, to my, to my understanding. Um, and I think that's an open question about how to do that. But coming back to your question about the ICU beds and, and hospital beds um, in general, because as you know, in Ontario, hospital beds are always an issue in terms of being able to access them and leading to clogged up emergency departments and lack of admissions. Um, there, first, uh, it, it's very clear that Canada runs very lean in terms of the number of hospital beds per capita that we have. So that means that Canada has tends to have fewer hospital beds per capita than many OECD countries, and that includes most of Europe. I suppose the question is, do we have the right number and should we have more? That's a really tricky question to answer because I think as we lived and experienced the pandemic, there was definitely a shortage of ICU and hospital beds owing to this huge surge due to the pandemic and the deleterious effects of the pandemic and the virus. But whether or not we wanted to increase the number of hospital beds and expand the footprint of all of our hospitals, waiting for the next pandemic is a really hard thing to answer because it has been uh, provinces experience that as soon as you build the capacity of, of more hospital beds, they become filled um, with patients. So that's not necessarily a bad thing for the patient occupying that bed, but from the perspective of the taxpayer and the government and the health systems researcher, once you build a hospital bed, you've baked in the cost of that hospital bed forever. And, and what's the stopping point? So, well, I don't know what the right number is, and I know that we probably have, uh, since we're running with fewer than most countries, you know, opportunities to expand the number of hospital beds I'm worried that we would overbuild for the next pandemic and that we wouldn't know how to where to stop in terms of building and expanding. Because as I noted at the very onset of this uh, discussion with you, David, um, you know, hospitals are the largest single source of expenditures by the provincial governments in healthcare by and large. And if we look to grow that, 
by adding hospital beds, we're certainly going to have that problem um, with a major cost uh, item for years and decades to come. Interesting. Why is it, like you said, that as soon as these beds get distributed or more infrastructure gets built, that it will automatically be used and then it's you know forever cemented? Where is that based in? That happens in almost every country, including Canada and all the provinces, but also in Europe and the United States as they scramble to fill their hospitals too. Once you have this expensive um, infrastructure developed, it tends to be used because you have a hospital bed there. If you have a marginal patients, it's safer to put them in the hospital bed than maybe send them home, especially if there are poor community supports. So we'll just keep them for a couple more days and so on. So the extra beds that are added generally get filled. One of the effective points of reference that you've been able to study that is seeming to uh, get some mainstream attention is the, the program that you started in Vancouver, tracking how patients do after surgery. What have you learned there? And what sort of precedents might that uh, bode for the rest of the country? Yeah, the reason that we initiated this program, and it's become a a very large quality improvement initiative, is to understand the gain in health attributable to elective surgeries. So that we have heard for decades in Canada that patients are waiting for their surgery. And from a health systems perspective, I was like, is the wait bad? And is it bad for everyone? Hmm. And um, does it affect their post-operative outcomes? And also, is there a big gain in health to be had here, even if we expedited their surgeries? Or is it just incremental marginal to give us some sense of the demand uh, uh, for these surgeries in terms of how much health hospitals and surgeons would be able to provide? So what we've done there is we've, we've set up, established a process whereby we collect patients' health measures of symptoms and function and overall health before their surgery. And then after they've completed the rehabilitative phase after their surgery, we then ask them to complete the same measures so that we understand how much their health has changed attributable to the different surgeries. So then we can say, oh, we're getting a lot, a lot of health back to these patients. And look at the cost. It's not very much. We should definitely operate more, expand operating rooms, do a lot more of these surgeries for these waiting patients. There's no need to make them wait while they're suffering because we get such a good return on the investment of public funds on increasing their health. So what we've tried to do is do a survey uh, around a whole bunch of different surgeries to understand the gain in health to be had by different kinds of surgeries to help guide thinking about where should we invest in decreasing waiting lists and uh, investing in increasing surgical capacity. What we found in some instances is that while weights are inconvenient for some, it doesn't affect their health. Their health doesn't decline during this period. And also it doesn't affect their surgical outcomes eventually when they get surgery. Where in other cases is people's condition that they may have continues to, to uh, decline during their weight. And those patients, and, and then they experience big gains in health postoperatively, 
that those patients should be expedited into surgery and expanded surgery capacity so that patients can improve function and health and symptoms and get back to their usual life as quickly as possible. So that there was no, before we'd set this up, there was a really a lack of understanding of how much health was being gained by different surgeries because people just see wait lists are bad. Prolonged delays in accessing care, especially elective surgery, can be bad. But it's different shades of bad depending on what kind of condition and surgery that you're waiting for. It's very bad for some, and it's less bad for others. So for identifying the surgeries where it's really bad, we should invest public money there to decrease wait times and get people back to their original health. What would be an example of, of one of those that you'd think some money needs to be invested for to, to limit wait times? That's a great question. I, I mean, a lot come to mind, but one that is very common is bunion correction surgery. So mm-hmm. people have very significant debilitating pain and mobility problems while they wait for their bunion surgery. And in some hospitals, the wait for bunion surgery can be four to eight to 12 months. And during that time, their physical mobility is limited. They're in a fair amount of pain during that time. And then they wait. And during that time, it doesn't necess- their health doesn't necessarily get worse, but they can't do all of the things that they used to do, like pick up their kids or play tennis or any of the physical activity things they used to do before their symptoms you know, inhibited their ability to move around on their foot. So, um, you know, we've shown that the gain in health owing to bunion surgery relative to its cost is very, very good in that people's health improves very significantly. Their symptoms not resolve, but get Mm. much better. Their health and well-being improve a lot. And it's not a very costly surgery. In my opinion, the, it's a very good use of public funding. Fair note to end on as we look to the future a little bit. Really appreciate you taking this time and I think we were able to get to some good content. So this is this is a big help. Okay. Well, David, it was very nice to meet you and to talk about the things that I feel very passionate about. So I'm happy to share with you um, some of my experiences over time. So thanks again. And if you want to read up on any of Jason's research or take a look at some of these healthcare funding numbers yourself, you can head to the show notes over at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. The mRNA vaccine may not be in the news to the extent that it was at the height of the pandemic. However, where they may be breaking new ground now is using this science to fight other diseases. Igar Sesteri is a researcher at McGill University who is testing to see if the mRNA could be used to help fight off a disease that originated in his home country of Brazil. The fact is, production of mRNA is very easy. Production of a protein is a lot more complicated. So you have to have an organism to produce a protein for you. And that would be other bacteria, yeast, another organism that you produce that in large amounts. You have to purify the protein so that there are many steps involved. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.